0: You ready, champ?
1: I've been ready for this my whole life.
0: Then you take us out on feet? Yeah, we ride across state lines. Going express, going 95. All net, like we're starting for the Nets. End to end, we might suit up for the Jets. Like Aaron Rogers coming to collect, throwing passes five wide out the set. Markets grinding higher than Jeanette Jackson. Color misses. Best respect when the trends start to connect. Call a confirmation, better bet when you smell this market breath on your neck. Don't reject that doubt theory. Lean in. Don't get weary or caught up in the throes of all those worries and woes. Stay steady. Be ready. Step up to the test. Ride the silver bullet on the Investopedia Express. All got to do now. Oh. Welcome back and welcome aboard. And can you smell it? That's the sweet low sizzling sound of the summer rally. And it smells pretty good too. U.S. equity markets continued their grill up and to the right last week with the Dow popping 2.1% and capping 10 straight sessions in the green on Friday. That's the longest streak since 2017. The S&P 500 added 0.7%, although the Nasdaq did cool off a little bit falling just over half a percent as Tesla and Netflix chilled investors with less than spectacular forecasts. But across the markets, breadth continues to improve, with sectors like healthcare, financials, and energy joining the summer party. Treasury yields, particularly long term treasury yields, are stabilizing with the yield on the 10 year clocking in at 3.84%. That feels more normal while the rate sensitive two year popped to 4.85%, as there are still a few investors out there who think a recession is coming. Data be damned. Industrial stocks may have something to say about that, as the sector has been one of the best performing sectors on an equal basis since June of last year. Remember the teachings of the grand master of Dow theory. <laughs> No, no, not that Grandmaster, but we do love Master Flash. Grandmaster Charlie Dow, the co-creator of the Dow Jones Indices. Dow Theory teaches us that when there's a coincident rally between the Dow Industrials and the Dow Transports, higher highs are usually in store. And guess what? Those two super sectors are at 52-week highs, and they are not alone. Have you seen what's grinding in the Machinery Index lately? That's right, the Dow Jones Machinery Index. It's a thing, and it's home to stocks like Illinois Toolworks and Ingersoll Rand, among others, and it's also at a 52-week high. If the economy is not going to land softly, you'd think these sectors would be spinning out, but they're spinning higher, and if this rally persists, last year's bear market across the Dow indices may be unwound faster than all but three of the past bear markets since World War II. And that leads us directly into our big three for the week. Number one. Growth investors may need to steady themselves in the coming days due to a special rebalancing of the NASDAQ 100, the home of the fastest-growing 100 U.S. stocks. You know how we've been talking about that overconcentration of performance by the Magnificent Seven, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, Meta, Tesla, and NVIDIA? Because those mega caps have gotten so swollen, representing more than 55% of the entire market cap of the cap-weighted NASDAQ 100, the NASDAQ is putting them on a little diet by rebalancing that popular index. Back in early July, the Nasdaq issued a release saying, quote, a special rebalance may be conducted to address over concentration in the index by redistributing the weights. Well, that is taking place on Monday, July 24th. Usually exchanges like NASDAQ and the NICE rebalance in December. But when there's overbloating going on due to the over or underperformance of particular stocks in an index, they are sometimes forced into special rebalancings, like what's about to happen? The Magnificent Seven's combined representation will drop from 55.1% to 43.7%, with Microsoft and NVIDIA getting the biggest cuts, each falling about 3 percentage points to 9.8% and 4.3% of the index. Apple will reclaim the top spot with a relatively small decrease of 1 percentage point. The trim weights from the Big Seven will be spread out across the rest of the index, with Broadcom, Adobe, PepsiCo, and Costco benefiting the most from the rebalancing. Now, a rebalancing of an index doesn't directly impact a company's share price, but it does have a knock-on effect as index managers who track indices like the 100 usually rebalance their own funds to follow suit, and ETFs like the Invesco QQQ, which is a proxy for the NASDAQ 100, pretty much have to do the same. Number two. That's right. It's time for the silly stock of the month club. And this month's silly stock is Carvana, ticker CVNA. And shares of the online car retailer are up more than 860% year to date. I know, silly, right? Kind of like 2021 GameStop, silly, especially when you consider that back in 2021, Carvana was warning of significant operational constraints that were a result of it actually selling too many cars that year, which was hurting its margins. Remember, back in 2021, we weren't going out to buy used cars in dealerships. Those who were buying were buying them online through companies like Carvana. That meant more customer care interactions, more last mile pickups since Carvana actually drives your purchase car to your home and takes away your trade-in, adding more cars to boost its inventory when cars and car parts were hard to come by, more title processing, and more paperwork. It was a victim of its own success. Cut to 2023, specifically two weeks ago in early July when Carvana pre-announced its second quarter earnings results telling investors it would be restructuring its debt and reducing its required cash interest expense by more than $430 million a year over the next two years. That was pretty good news, but Carvana still reported an operating loss of over $100 million with revenue declining 24% while units sold fell by 35%. In case you hadn't noticed, used car sales and prices are plummeting lately, so either some investors think that's going to turn around, or the meme stock army is back on the march propping up Carvana as hedge funds try to short it. We've seen this movie before. And number three, keep an eye on labor. It's the summer of discontent for organized labor as strikes and work stoppages are happening across the media and entertainment industry, and they may be about to happen in the auto and shipping industries as well. More than 650,000 American workers may strike this summer, especially if the 340,000 UPS workers represented by the Teamsters Union hit the picket lines and around 140,000 auto workers represented by the United Auto Workers Union join the fray. This could end up being the biggest year of strikes in six decades as workers across these industries demand higher wages, better benefits, and their piece of the profit pie that corporate executives and first class investors have been feasting on for decades. To be sure, only 6% of the U.S. Private sector workforce is organized in labor unions, but those workers are in key industries like entertainment, auto manufacturing, and transportation. They can and they will disrupt the economy if they get organized enough, and that could make things very interesting in this pre-election year, especially with the economy on a tightrope. Let's get set up for a really big week ahead. And nothing's bigger than the Fed's decision on interest rates due out this Wednesday at 2 p.m. Traders are nearly 100% certain that the Fed will raise rates one last time, lifting the federal funds rate another quarter of a percent to 5.5% to quarter percent and that will be the terminal rate. We're going to hang around these levels into the fourth quarter most likely, or maybe into the first quarter of 2024, and that's when the Fed is expected to start cutting rates. But interest rate-sensitive loans like mortgages will respond before that happens, so don't be surprised to see rates on things like the 30-year mortgage, car loans, and credit card APRs start to decline sooner. While the Fed's decision seems like a fait accompli, we do want to hear what Fed Chair Powell and the voting members of the FOMC have to say about the path of inflation, lending between banks and consumers, its forecast for where the Fed funds rate should be in 6 to 12 months, and more about Taylor Swift, please. Please, more Tay-Tay. Meanwhile, across the pond, the European Central Bank is expected to raise its benchmark rate by 25 basis points and not rule out another rate hike in September. Inflation is sticky high across the hot Eurozone this summer. Back here in the U.S., the advanced estimate for second quarter GDP will be released on Thursday, followed by the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index. That's the Fed's preferred inflation gauge. That comes out on Friday. The U.S. economy likely expanded 1.1% in the second quarter, according to the conference board, a little bit stronger than those preliminary forecasts of just 0.6% GDP growth. We'll also get the latest updates on home prices, along with new and pending home sales for June. Keep an eye on those mortgage rates. The earnings season hits full swing this week, with 150 companies in the S&P 500 due to report. The list of widely held companies includes Microsoft, Meta Platforms, MasterCard, Boeing, Ford, and Coca-Cola. Optimistic forecasts could add more fuel to this summer rally. As mentioned, we're also going to have our eyes and ears on the negotiations between United Parcel Service and the International Brotherhood of Teamsters on a new labor contract that covers about 340,000 workers. That contract expires July 31st. Remember, UPS handles around 28% of the 75 million packages delivered in the U.S. on a typical day. A lot of it is mission critical, like medicines. Talks are set to resume on July 25th. Hollywood is burning, cash that is, as the entertainment industry is facing dual strikes from two of its unions, the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild of America. It's the first double strike facing the media and entertainment industry since 1963. A lot has changed since 1963, to say the least, and at the heart of this work stoppage is how to deal with the realities of royalties from streaming that these creators want a piece of, and the onset of artificial intelligence, and what it could do to the future of media making. While these are the latest threats to Tinseltown, the truth is that media and entertainment as we know it has been facing storm after storm of disruptions since the internet became the internet. No one has covered these industries closer and more perceptively than Brian Stelter. Brian is the special correspondent for Vanity Fair and the host of the Inside the High podcast and the former chief media correspondent at CNN, where we worked together for a few good years. And he is our very special guest this week on The Express. Welcome, my friend. Great to see you. Thanks. So I gave the broad strokes on what's behind these work stoppages, but let's dig into them a little bit more for context. Let's start with the streaming royalties issues. Help unpack that for us.
1: The first time I received a check in the mail for a penny, I realized this business is broken. You know, uh, Caleb, I'm a producer on the morning show on on Apple TV Plus, and I made a cameo in one of the episodes. And, you know, I've been on a few late night shows where you get royalties, you get residuals. These are payments after the fact when a show is streamed or rebroadcast or shown in a different country. And there's a lot of good reasons why actors and, and writers and others expect residuals and depend on this as a revenue, as a source of revenue, especially when they're in between jobs, when a show is not in production or a show's off the air. Residuals, royalties, it made a lot of sense for a long time. And it became you know a key aspect of the Hollywood um, structure, the Hollywood world. But now in the, the era of streaming, these unions, they say the model's broken. They say the system is broken. They say streaming has caused a lot lower residuals. And sometimes that's why you end up with checks in the mail for a penny.
0: And these guys, especially the writers, but a lot of the actors too, not the stars we're talking about and not the lead writers, but the people that go to work every day, this is their job. They don't make a lot of money as is. So they depend on this for their livelihood. And it isn't fair, but is it fixable?
1: Right now, it does not seem like there's an imminent solution either with the writer strike or the actor strike. We're in the heat of the summertime. A lot of people are looking toward Labor Day as a deadline here or as a milestone at least. You've seen Fran Drescher, who turns out to be the president of SAG. That's the president of the Actors Union, the Actors Guild. You know, she's been out there saying, you can't change the business model as much as it's changed and not expect the contract to change too. So we can't go from this live linear watch everything at the same time on tv world into an on-demand streaming world and not have significant changes to the contract but the studios the alliance that represents the studios they say they're being fair they say they're being more than fair that's why we have this this blockage now pretty incredible to see both unions on strike at the same time
0: yeah again 63 years since we've seen that and who better to lead the effort than Fran Dresher? we want the nanny on that wall. We need her on that wall. And then you you also look at some of the salaries paid to some of these Hollywood execs or some of these media entertainment execs, and it doesn't match up, but it never does in any industry. That's just an easy flashpoint to point to. But if you're looking at where a lot of the money goes, it goes to that, but it also goes to the content where studios have been putting a lot of money either to buy these serialized superhero movies or to buy dramas, renewals season after season in prestige TV. So is there money left over?
1: Then That's the thing about streaming, the streaming era, is that the the greatest beneficiary of the Netflix revolution has been you you and me and our families and our friends. The consumers have benefited, but arguably not really as much the companies or the actors or the writers. Now, I would say that the studios would say, well, there's so much more work now. There are so many more shows, so many more movies, there's so much more opportunity now for creatives. And And there is some truth to that. But if you think about what's happened as a result of the streaming revolution, we're all watching different stuff on our own terms at our own leisure. It's great for us as consumers, but the business model is not nearly as great as it was in the cable television, the heyday of cable television, right? In the heyday of cable television, everybody was paying for CNN and Bravo and the BET and everything, whether they watched it or not. That bundle was, was maybe too good to be true, but for decades, it was the core of the business. It was predictable, it was reliable, it was steady. Streaming's blown that apart. And again, I think we're all benefiting as consumers, because this is a better environment for watching TV and movies, but streaming is incredibly unprofitable for these big media companies. It has been an arduous, agonizing task to move from the old model to the new model. And so that's why you hear these studios saying, we're trying to be fair to the actors and writers, but we don't have any money left over. Now, again, to your point. These are, you know, multi, 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 multi multi-millionaire CEOs, very well compensated leadership at the top of these companies. And that I think is partly why this has been such an intense period on the picket lines, because the income inequality part is staring the writers and some extent, the actors right in the face.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then there's AI. It's a threat to nearly every information industry, Brian, as you know it, or it's an opportunity depending where you sit. But what are the writers and the actors worried about? Is there any way to protect them from this?
1: I think they are right to be worried. There is a lot of trepidation about where generative AI is taking us. And I think it's understandable. James Poniewozik wrote a great piece about this in the New York Times a few days ago, describing you know, some questions that I would never have thought of five years ago. Who owns a performer's face? For example, he wrote about how background actors want protections because you can imagine a world where a producer scans a person's face, uses that with the help of AI in multiple backgrounds and multiple movies and multiple times of the year. And it's, you're only getting paid once for your own face. Like that is the kind of new terrain, the new territory that we're talking about in an AI driven world. And that's just a taste of it. I mean, you can get as creative as as your imagination will allow, right? This is really right perfectly for writers. Writers can imagine all sorts of abuses of an AI driven world. And yet, there's also probably no stopping it, right, Caleb?
0: Absolutely. we have already seen it at Investopedia, but across the publishing world, you're seeing it in the creation of content everywhere, and it is going to be a disruptor. The question is, how do we deal with it? And that is being worked on, and you and I are going to be front and center on that as well. Look, big media has changed a lot over the past few years, and you and I have both seen it firsthand at places that we've worked. Time Warner, where we both worked at CNN, was gobbled up by AT&T, which spit it back out into the hands of Discovery. Comcast is on the NBC University company for years. Paramount was split out of Viacom. Fox sold studios to Disney. So much movement in the industry and Disney now thinking about shedding the ABC network and other cable TV assets. What is going on with big media as we know it? What happened to that model where phone companies wanted to own the content so they could put it through their pipes?
1: I think in the entertainment space, the biggest trend of all, the biggest phenomenon of all is this move from live all at the same time, pretty much everyone watching most of the same thing, Into this world of infinite choice infinite possibility and in an ai world infinite programming right where ai can generate a program for you based on whatever criteria you want to give it that move and right netflix is sort of the we use the word netflix to summarize it but it's much bigger than netflix that move is everything right that that move is what's driven so many of these mergers and acquisitions and and then spin-offs and divestitures it's all a reaction in some ways to the streaming era and it was also in other ways it is pushing it forward, causing it to happen, accelerating that th- these changes. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's both at the same time. Some companies are trying to keep up. Others are driving this forward. But I, I like to step back and think about it in that bigger picture way because we are only 11, 12 years since Netflix announced House of Cards, I'll never forget where I was. I was in South by Southwest at the conference when Netflix basically said, we are going to compete with HBO. We are going to make our own shows. And that was only, you know, a little more than a decade ago. Now we are in an environment where there's more consumption of Netflix than there is all the major networks combined. Yeah, you do have Disney looking around saying, should we shed ABC, this once crown jewel asset that now feels so behind the times? There is an element I find of of sadness to it, To think about so much creative destruction that's happened, so much extraction that's happened by investors and by CEOs trying to extract money out of these bloated big media companies before they sink deeper into the ground. But at the same time, if you're a 23-year-old trying to break into the business uh, who has a great idea for a show, there are more places to pitch that show than there ever were before. So there's obviously upsides as well as downsides.
0: Yeah, I didn't even get into the Apples, the Amazons, and the alphabets of the world with YouTube. They're huge content creators. They're spending billions of dollars a year on content. And guess what? They have the devices and the subscriptions right into the American home that people want and get. You talked about Netflix announcing uh, House of Cards 12 years ago. This iPhone has only been around for 15 or 16 years. And the fact that we could get any programming anytime, on the train, in the car, on the plane, wherever we want, that's a game changer too.
1: It's such a profound change in the way that we both consume media, but also create media and how we all experience in our lives this notion of content, right? When, when we're all creating content as well as consuming at the same time, that benefits the AT&T's and Verizon's, it benefits the Amazons and Apple's. To your point, though, about you know the phone companies for a while seeming to want to be media companies and, and owning content, uh, at and buying Time Warner, including CNN, and then giving up on that plan— so much of the talk of synergy, so many of the fantastic promises of synergies I have become so skeptical of. And, you know, it's not to say that sometimes there's not truth behind the M&A spin, but it pays to be incredibly skeptical, I think.
0: Absolutely. So when we're talking about an AI world, because we know it's coming, it's already here, but the fact that it's going to become more pervasive, does the value of content diminish in an AI world? There's already so much content out there. This is a podcast. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, tons of news prestige programming, lots of channels to watch things on. Now, if AI can create programming like popcorn, does it just drive the value of content to the ground?
1: I'm afraid to answer because I'm afraid I'll be wrong if I listen back to this in 10 years. But what my gut tells me at the moment is that as there are increasing amounts of content to the point of infinity, where most of the internet will be generated by computers, by AI robots, basically, in that world where we're already basically there and we're very close to being there, the highest value, the biggest thing humans can add is going to be curation. It's going to be moderation. It's going to be aggregation. It's going to be figuring out what the treasure is versus the trash. Because in an environment, I think about this with regards to the news media a lot. In the journalism world, in the world of journalism and reporting, there's so much trash and there's so much treasure. And the key is being able to know the difference and sort it out. Will AI get to the point where it can do that? I'm sure. But at least for the foreseeable future, there's still so much value in human curation and that kind of involvement. And by the way, there's so many other aspects that they cannot be replaced by robots right now, replaced by AI right now. You know, Google came out and talked about its ability to write news articles with an AI supercomputer, but you need to have reporting, you need to have original material to feed into the system to write the article. You know, so there's, the, you know, I think as we think about AI, we actually have, have to think about what is the AI generating on, based on and what are the, where are the humans in that process?
0: Yeah, great point. Great point. All right, let's talk about the movie business. Big studios like Marvel and Universal, they only make superhero sequels, right? These big, the Avengers, the Endgames, you know, the Fast and the Furious of it all, Netflix, Amazon and Apple, they take more chances, but indie films are fewer and farther between, irrespective of the strike that's going on right now. What is the future of the motion picture business look like from your perspective?
1: number 1 looks more fractured meaning there are you know lots of low budget films and you know niche comedies and dramas being made in all sorts of languages streaming all around the world on various platforms but never hear of the vast majority of them what you need are these big studios with their marketing budgets to Push a few up to the top and get them into theaters as well as on streaming and make a lot of noise about them. And we've seen that in the last few days with Barbie and Oppenheimer. I'm loving every minute of Barbenheimer because it's uh, a promotion for the movie industry ecosystem. It's a reminder of the joy of looking forward to going and seeing a movie and not just hitting play on your remote. You know, there is something so old school and yet like so wonderful and, and exciting about a moment where people are talking about the same couple of movies. and. You know, let's recognize that's a pseudo event. That's a creation. That's a Hollywood marketing creation that they're both coming out. That They both came out on the same weekend. And there's this rivalry, this competition that's been created. So that makes me have some faith in the studios, some faith in the movie industry as we know it. At the same time, if you're an indie director, it can be harder to find financing, harder to find support. I, I see this in the documentary world quite a bit right now. There was a boom for a documentary of filmmaking a number of years ago. It seemed like any project that was out there would get funded. It's become a lot tighter in the last few years. To some extent, that's probably good. Probably separates, again, the trash and the treasure. But I guess the other thing that makes me optimistic or bullish about the movie business I said there's there's always some guy, usually it's a guy, there's always people out there who want to become financiers of films. There's all, you know, we, we've seen this out of the Middle East in in recent years. There's always somebody that wants to uh get that Hollywood uh glitter and uh so to some extent that makes me um hopeful if that's uh,
0: fair. Yeah. There, there's a few billionaires out there that like to have their name as the executive producer and creator of projects. And I'm not one of them, but I went into the movie making business a few years ago during the pandemic and reignited my production studio. So I know the feeling. And there's people that just have that burning desire to create content. And every once in a while we get surprised by a wonderful movie or a wonderful new prestige drama like The Bear, which I absolutely love, which reminds us that it's all about the creators. It's all about these great actors. It's all about the storytelling and hopefully and it should play out that this lives on. It's just going to be different. All right, let's get into one of the big studios, Disney. We talked a little bit about it shedding assets. Bob Iger said recently in at the uh, Billionaires Conference up in Sun Valley that, you know, it may be time to shed ABC, the ABC network, but it also has ESPN. It's got a piece of Hulu. Where does Disney play in this? Does Disney just want to be a theme park company that sells cool stuffed animals, or is this the end of this kind of content bundling under one big umbrella? or a kingdom, as we should say.
1: I mean, I think Bob Bunker, that's right. I think Bob Bunker under a lot of pressure right now, uh, You know, given where the company stock is. It's, it's at a 52 week low, basically uh, hovering near that low. It's at, a, it's at a, a rocky past year plus. And some of that is a reaction to how expensive it is to fight the streaming wars. Part of that might also be the, the battles with Ron DeSantis in Florida, but I guess you could make the argument that Disney as a brand has been under a significant amount of pressure. That said, I I would never bet against it. I I should admit that I own Disney stock. I would never bet against it for the following reason: as soon as I I believe my kids are going to be old enough to remember their first trip to Disney World, we're getting on the first plane to Florida. And you know, so is that a theme park company? Yes, but then when we get home, we're going to have to buy more Mickey Mouse toys. We're going to have to buy uh, more Frozen gear. To me, they have a flywheel that all the other major media companies envy, and 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 rightly do, rightly so. It is still, you know, despite the challenges of the last year or so. And despite how wildly you know expensive it is to fight the streaming war, I think tell I me mean, if I'm wrong. I'd still rather be Disney than Paramount, for example. I'd still rather be Disney uh, than some of these other players.
0: Yeah, and what they do have is what we call experience. They know it; they've had it for decades, and that is where that flywheel comes from. But if they are to shed assets, or if some of these other studios or phone companies are shedding assets, like we've heard about and been through who wants to buy content assets these days? Is it private equity? Is it a sovereign wealth fund? Why does the business model look smart for anyone thinking about buying a big studio or content asset like that?
1: I'm not sure it does look that smart because there's a widespread recognition of some businesses being in secular decline. That said there are ways to manage the decline. And we as we see that across the media business. And when I say manage decline, we're talking about a decline from a high point, a high place, you know, assets that still make a lot of, that make a lot of money, that make a lot of profit, but are feeling a lot of pressure uh, from their customers, both to change and also to shrink. And so, Let's think, think about Time Magazine and Mark Benioff, the head of Salesforce, buying Time Magazine. Not looking to create another Salesforce, but looking for influence, looking for the excitement that comes from owning its this prestigious premier brand, even as the brand shrinks in print. You know, I think that sort of attitude, and also wanting to be a good steward of the brand, wanting the brand to matter. So I'm thinking about that in something you know, old line like print. I think that some of those same attributes apply in broadcasting, potentially in other parts of the media business under pressure where there are people who want to either help manage that decline in a responsible way or believe they have the confidence, the, the smarts, the uh, wisdom, the ability to see around the corner to go and do it differently and do it better, right? And, and that's one of the great American stories in business, right? Is, is you gamble on an asset that others are giving up on and you find a way to make it great again.
0: All right, let's get a couple of hot takes for you for the rest of the year. What do you think is out there that nobody's talking enough about or talking about but not getting the right attention from your point of view?
1: You know, Netflix has been hammered in recent days. I think that's a that's an anomaly. I think Netflix is still far and away, you know, three times around the track further ahead of all of its rivals. And we need to keep that in the proper perspective. You know, in some ways that YouTube as well. But, you know, for all the talk about uh, uh, Max and, and, and Hulu and Disney Plus, I use all of Netflix is so far ahead. And I think it's important not to let that get unrecognized. Now, I am curious about some of the extensions they've announced. Like they talked to, for you know quite a bit about going into gaming and the video games. That talk is hushed. So I'm really interested in gaming strategies at these companies. Microsoft buying Activision, for example. What's the gaming strategy? And as a generation grows up, that's more accustomed to playing and being in the content versus watching it. That's not a hot take. It's a warm. Maybe it's a warm, but it's what I'm watching.
0: Cool. And what actually are you watching for fun when you and your your great wife are hanging out and you guys are done with work? But I know you guys work so tirelessly. I'm fortunate to see her on New York One. But what do you guys hang out and watch? What do you watch when you have time that is not the industry?
1: The last show we watched together was Succession, and that was all about the industry. And then I've been in like a book writing pit. So I told her, Go ahead, watch The Bear Without Me, watch your stuff without me. I'll watch when I get to it. What I've been watching myself when I have downtime, if I'm in a serious mood. I I watch uh, Hijack on Apple TV Plus. It has a couple more weeks to go. And then, uh, you know, if I'm about to fall asleep or want something to fall asleep to, I go on a Peacock. It's either The Office, I've been doing The Office again from the beginning, or uh, the show American Auto uh, by Justin Spitzer. It was canceled after two seasons. Tragic. But it's amazing. I'm almost in the second season. It's like The Office, but at a car company, like in more of a white collar uh, executive workforce. And I absolutely adore it. And if I could have an AI, a Gen AI robot create a third season of American Auto for me, I would do that.
0: Yeah, don't play because that might happen even before <laughs> you're ready for it. Right. You, you mentioned your book. I know you're writing a book on Fox and Dominion. Tell us about it. When can we expect it? And uh, where do we find it?
1: Yeah, if I get it done, it's called Network of Lies. If I get it done, it'll be out uh, in November. It, it's really going inside the Dominion discovery process and all the files, all the emails and text messages that were published uh, back in the winter uh, from inside Fox News. We've never seen an X-ray of a media company like this before, where there's so many documents from the inside showing how the place really works. Uh, So that's what I'm drilling into.
0: All right. We can't wait to read it. And meantime, we will look out for you on Vanity Fair. They're the host of The Hive podcast and the special correspondent at Vanity Fair, Brian Stelter, my friend. Good to have you on The Express. Thanks for spending some time with us.
1: Thank you. Good talking with you.
0: It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Isabel Thomas, who hit us up on the gram, suggesting the payout ratio this week. What a good idea. According to Investopedia, the payout ratio, also known as the dividend payout ratio, shows the percentage of a company's earnings paid out as dividends to shareholders. A low payout ratio can signal that a company is reinvesting the bulk of its earnings into expanding operations. A payout ratio over 100% indicates that the company is paying out more in dividends than its earnings can support, which some view as an unsustainable practice. Payout ratios are like Goldilocks, like that. You want to invest in companies that offer a generous payout ratio. After all, That's the point of the dividend, but you don't want it to come at the expense of growing its profits, which should, in theory, boost its share price. That's the way it's supposed to work, anyway. Great suggestion, Isabel. Let's keep a close eye on payout ratios this earnings season, and let's see who's doing it right. We're going to let the late, great Tony Bennett take us out this week. Anthony Dominic Benedetto, born on August 3, 1926 in Astoria, Queens, passed away last week, just shy of his 97th birthday. A legendary pop and jazz singer, Bennett won over 20 Grammy Awards, a Lifetime Achievement Award, a Kennedy Center Award, a Gershwin Prize, and so many more. He sold millions and millions of records over his 70-year career and reinvented himself several times, but never losing that unforgettable joy and that priceless voice that made so many people fall in love. I was one of them. Tony Bennett has been in my life my whole life. I even got the chance to meet him. And I'll miss his smile, his style, and his sound. But I'll never stop listening to him. Here's Tony in a 2012 interview with Entertainment Tonight talking about why he never wants to stop learning.
1: My true ambition, if I get lucky enough, uh, I'd like to prove that by not giving up on life, because to me life is beautiful, and by not giving up on it, I hope to prove that if you don't give up on it, you can actually improve and get better as you get older. I've never worked a day in my life. I'm doing the two things that I love. So there's so much more to learn. And I want to prove that if I stay healthy, and I'm keeping my fingers crossed that it happens, I want to prove that you get better as you get older
0: thanks for joining us this week as always and special thanks to brian stelter for joining the express so great to get his perspective on what's happening out there we'll link to brian's terrific column and broadcast and all the reports we cited on today's program find those wherever you ride the express and on investopedia.com slash the express podcast and we'll talk again a little further on down the line
1: take my hand
0: i'm a stranger in paradise